Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's Monday, March the 20th, 2023. Uh, it's been another wet weekend in Northern California, of course. Water does shape society. Uh, we did a show a couple of years ago with Giulio Bocelletti, who had a uh, who has a who had a book, uh, Water, a biography out. He explained that water shapes everything, and just as um, water shapes everything, its absence also shapes society. Take two places that um, have a scarcity of water, Saudi Arabia and Arizona. Uh, you don't often hear them spoken about in the same sentence, in the same context, Saudi Arabia and the American southwest state of, of Arizona. And yet they're in many ways quite comparable in a political and a geopolitical sense. My guest today um, uh, is uh, an authority on geopolitics, on spatiality, and on this weird relationship between Arizona and Saudi Arabia. And Natalie Cook is indeed the author um, of the New York Times piece on this relationship between Arizona water, uh, and, or the absence of Arizona's water and the absence of Saudi Arabia's water. And she's also the author of a book that just came out at the beginning of the year called Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia. Natalie is joining us from Boulder, Colorado, where I hope there's a lot more water. Uh, she's normally based in Syracuse, New York. Um, Natalie, this weird relationship between Arizona and, and, and Saudi Arabia, how did you stumble upon it? Actually, the, the, the first thing that really triggered my interest in this is simply because I'm from Arizona and I had heard a story about this Saudi farm deal that was aired in 2015 or so uh, and the farm deal was in Arizona and I thought to myself coming from Arizona why on earth is that happening I thought that we knew better than uh, growing these really water intensive crops because there they were growing alfalfa uh, and so that sort of stayed with me for a little bit I didn't start researching it immediately uh, but once I did start to look into it I discovered that actually there was this really really long history of connections between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula um, and it was it was really that farm deal that was the subject of that Times piece that you uh, showed already that, that this was this was the initial trigger for me. I think there's a broader element here, too. Um, mm -hmm. We've done a number of shows on um, the climate crisis. There was a news piece out today that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, has issued what they call a final warning on the climate crisis. On the one hand, one of the great crises facing the world is of global warming, and the other is the rise of authoritarianism, a new kind of authoritarianism. Uh, we've done shows on Saudi, Arab Saudi Arabia's appalling human rights record. Uh, did one with uh, Jeed Bassouni a couple of months ago, um, 
who runs the Saudi desk of Reprieve, and they came out, uh, the, the Reprieve came out with a report suggesting that the Saudi Arabian uh, capital punishment um, record was as bad as anywhere in the world. In, in your view, um, Natalie, as a broader element here, is there a connection mm -hmm. between the rise of authoritarianism and the climate crisis uh, and perhaps you might explain the Saudi role in this as an in extremely repressive regime on the one hand, and on the other hand, as still the source of much of the world's petroleum. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of different angles on exactly that. I think much of the much of the academic and media coverage of authoritarianism tends to focus on violations of human rights. My research on authoritarianism, which is related to but slightly separate from, from this particular Arid Empire project, has focused actually on how authoritarian regimes use positive things to promote legitimacy and use all sorts of developmentalist things to entice citizens and uh, seem, seem attractive to their citizens and foreign partners. So what you do see, I think, in a lot of the, the Gulf countries coming out in recent years is that they understand that their legitimacy, their authoritarian hold on power is attached to continuing to have this positive economic set of opportunities for their citizens. So as the Gulf countries are looking at a future where they might not be able to rely on oil and gas revenue constantly, that they're trying to diversify and look for other ways to create economic opportunities. Uh, so in, in a sense, they're, they are interested in thinking about a post-oil future, but really they're only doing that insofar as it will allow them to continue to hold on to authoritarian control. So yes, the, the, the climate crisis is very much attached to the, the fossil fuel system and structure of power that underpins all of the sort of authoritarian relations in the Gulf countries and, and indeed beyond that. Um, but they are, are, are feeling that there's a potential challenge there from the, from the climate crisis itself, and they're starting to act on that. Um, and interestingly, just going back to the question about that Saudi-Arizona farm deal, one of the reasons that you have that that uh, foreign acquisition of farmland is because they have already depleted their own water reserves in Saudi Arabia and in other parts of the Arabian Peninsula. So it's increasingly important for them to look to other places. And as they are starting to do that, not just by buying foreign farmland, but purchasing stakes in major renewable initiatives, purchasing stakes in major Silicon Valley companies, all sorts of ways of investing outside of the countries, uh, that is also then a form of that authoritarian power coming in through the economy. And uh, that, that has been a really key aspect to Gulf uh, efforts to ensure a, a, a continuation of their, of their hold on power. Natalie, you're the editor of, a, of another book, uh, another Verso book, Spatializing Authoritarianism. What does exactly does that mean, and 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 is that exact is that really what you're talking about, in the way in which the Saudis and other Gulf states are designing these new cities, these new projects, which enable them to legitimize authoritarianism, particularly in the context of our climate crisis and the absence of water. Yeah, in. 
So I am a geographer and geographers actually haven't really contributed that much to conversations on authoritarianism. So in the past 10 years, I've really tried to bring that geographic perspective to that um, to, to that set of questions about what is authoritarianism? Where is it? How is it um, spreading or, or being pushed back around the world? What you often see in these conversations is, is just this imagination that authoritarianism sort of ends and begins at the borders of a country. So for example, the United States is not authoritarian, but Saudi Arabia is authoritarian. And we just have these sort of containers of state space. So in that book, Spatializing Authoritarianism, my effort is to try and think about other spatial expressions of authoritarianism that are not confined just to the territorial state. And when you start to do that, when you start to break apart that lens, that state-centric lens, you can actually see the way that these authoritarian relationships are being developed through all sorts of other their connections and in all sorts of different scales. Uh, so yes, absolutely. When you start to think about the Saudi, the, the Saudi state, we can classify it as an authoritarian system, but it also reaches well beyond its borders, as of course we saw with the case of Jamal Khashoggi and his um, murder in Turkey. Uh, so there's lots of different ways that authoritarian states and their state power reaches into other contexts. Uh, so that's part of what I'm looking at. I'm also then looking at the way that authoritarian uh, practices are actually actually developed and acted on by actors uh, that, that are coming from ostensibly democratic contexts. So a lot of the development that you see in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, in Qatar, uh, these other countries that I study internationally, they're being developed by partners from McKinsey and company, consultants who are, you know, having having their education and, and upbringing in the United States uh, or Europe. There's Siemens is a major German company that's active in a lot of these countries as well. So you have these uh, ostensibly democratic actors who are coming in and helping build the authoritarian systems uh, in the Gulf as well. And of course, this is the Gulf is my focus, but it's not just uh, limited to that region. Yeah, it's interesting that um, you uh, you talk about these big consulting firms. We did another show on them as a big con, as politically uh, being used by authoritarian reactionary governments like like the Saudis or other central uh, uh, other Gulf or, or Central Asian states to legitimize their rule. Coming back to geography or perhaps architecture, I'm sure you've given a lot of mm -hmm. thought, um, Natalie, to architecture. We had a Dutch architect on the show, uh, Renier de Graaf, on how what he argues are citizen buildings have been infected by language, corporate language, wellness, innovation, and livability. He writes about this in his new book, Architect Verb, The New Language of Building. As a geographer, I'm guessing you're dealing with the new, what, the, the language of water, the language of scarcity, the language of space. Are all these things connected and are they all essentially politicized? Of course, uh, Graf relies on Orwell in many ways to remind ourselves of the political significance of language and particularly in its abuse. Mm. 
Yeah, so my last monograph before the Arid Empire book was called The Geopolitics of Spectacle. And there I was looking at these spectacular capital city projects. And, and my focus there was, it, my previous research was in Kazakhstan. Uh, and so I started by looking at Kazakhstan's new capital city, Astana. Uh, and then I, I sort of did some comparative analysis with the Gulf countries. And what you can see in both the Central Asian capitals that I look at and the Gulf countries is this spectacular element gets amplified uh, by the fact that this these are cities that are built in the middle of a desert environment. Uh, and so that sort of spectacle of engineering this, this uh, you know, architectural marvel in the middle of the desert is something that, that these regimes have really promoted and, and uh, underscored in that. So in some ways, this, this Arid Empire project got started in my thinking and reflection on the way that these arid environments and water scarce environments were part of that creation of the spectacle. Uh, and it also got me started thinking about how it is that you have these common developments in certain parts of the world uh, and are they actually interconnected uh, so so in many ways yes this this is a project that um, has to do with language but it's also about just the visual effect of the architecture as well uh, which is then spun and used in the promotion of regime legitimacy in lots of different ways uh, and, and it just worked in a in a in a slightly different manner with the arid empire set of stories that i that i started to work on yeah it was interesting in my conversation with de graf we talked about this new saudi city of neom which is mm -hmm. an attempt to create a high-tech authoritarian or perhaps even totalitarian space uh, which is very chilling it's interesting also that you talk about mm -hmm. Astana. I was actually, as it happened, I was in Astana a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. I had to do a speech in Kazakhstan and mm -hmm. it was just before the riots. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that struck me is that in a, in a spatial element, a place like Astana is, the, the only way to summarize it is, is, is as a surreal place. On, you have the, the coexistence on the one hand of, a legacy of Soviet or perhaps even Stalinist architecture mm -hmm. existing side by side with these enormously expensive high-tech projects, which are designed to worship the new rulers. Meanwhile, there's no public space. Meanwhile, everything's dominated by cars. Meanwhile, there's no public sidewalk. It's impossible to walk anywhere, as I found to my uh, cost trying to walk around Astana. So a, a place like Astana seems to capture all the, the most dystopian elements of the, the 20, 21st century. On the one hand, complete inefficiency. Secondly, profound inequality. And thirdly, the corruption of public space. Have you been to mm -hmm. Astana? Yes, yeah, I, I spent many, many years working on and, and writing about Astana. And I think what, it's interesting the, the way that you describe it, because that's a very um, common reaction to outsiders who come to Astana. Uh, but if you talk to Kazakhs, uh, they, they have a very different framing of it. And yes, there is a kind of familiarity and in some ways, um, 
I would say, a, a sort of rhyming with that Stalinist architecture and that Stalinist impressive nature of the monumental cities. Uh, but, but they also see in it a kind of vision of the future. And that is exactly what the government is trying to promote. So there, there is a degree to which people sort of are, are, are captured by that enchanting sense of the city, that even if it is in, in our general um, understanding of things, not very walkable, as all the Gulf cities are the same, right? They're not designed for pedestrians, they're designed for elites in a lot of ways. Um, but that creates this kind of aspirational sense among the citizens who are being sort of inculcated in this other vision of what modernity looks like, and what kind of desires they should have as subjects of that new modern state. Uh, so yes, it is exclusionary, uh, but it's also a, a sort of education in what is to be desired as citizens of this new capitalist state, which really marks a pretty dramatic shift from that Soviet era um, vision and story about what, yeah, what, what people should aspire to. And, and for some, that's actually still quite enchanting. Uh, you're, a, as you say, a political geographer. Uh, you're an academic. And as I said, you, you edited a book called Spatializing Authoritarianism. Not entirely clear what that means. Uh, you also the author of Arid Empire. Seems to me you're a, a big fan of uh, Michel Foucault, the French historian. Uh, you quote him on your homepage. There is a will to essentiality which no one, uh, sorry, there is a will to essentiality which one should mistrust. I wonder, coming back to language, Natalie, one of the criticisms of Foucault and that whole tradition and school is that sometimes it's actually rather difficult to define their language, that they use these long words like spatializing and terms like spatializing authoritarianism, but one is never entirely sure what they mean. Are you... Um, concerned about that when you come up with terms like spatializing authoritarianism, mm. spatializing authoritarianism and when you work within that Foucaultian tradition, are you mm. concerned with language? Do you think that critics of this new world need to get their words right if they're to be mm. credible and important? Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, I... I I, I'm, I'm grateful that you brought up that quote because I think exactly in that quote is my answer to this, which is I absolutely am, I'm, I'm interested in language and the politics of language, but I personally do not think that it is my role as a scholar to uh, create some sort of essential definition of what is and isn't authoritarianism. Uh, and it, you can see this in, in any sort of set of terms that float around the concept of authoritarianism, tyranny, um, despotism, there's, you know, a, a range of different terms of, of illiberal government types. Um, and what my research tends to focus on is exactly that slippage uh, between all of these sorts of concepts. And to simply say that I, as an academic, cannot come up with some taxonomy because the, the taxonomies are endless. And you can see this if you look at Max Weber's work. Uh, he has just, there's all these different types of regimes. Um, and and the, the history of the study of authoritarianism is precisely to that, that sort of taxonomical uh, impulse. 
for me, the study of language and the, the focus on language is to look at the politics of that and how do certain people use that story to their benefit and to promote a particular political agenda. Uh, so you can, of course, see this when the, the typical example would be like a Freedom House map where the, the map is just uh, these big green spaces which are happy and democratic uh, and other parts of the world that are marked as authoritarian and therefore bad. And in that distinction and in that mapping of those sorts of spaces around this concept of free, not free, you have uh, already a moral, a moral story that is being told. So my research as a political geographer is to ask, well, how whose morals are those? How are those morals being mapped? And how is language getting pulled into that? Uh, so I'm never looking for an essence. And that's why I'm, I'm always very comfortable with keeping things fluid. And for me, spatializing authoritarianism is, is not necessarily to have an essence. And I think that's kind of where I get to uh, that the introduction telling the, the readers that they are not going to get a definition of authoritarianism, that there's always going to be a different scale at which we could consider authoritarian relations. Uh, so, so from my side, this is precisely what I appreciate about Foucault's work, that he pushes against that uh, impulse to have a, a particular concept so neatly defined and rather pushes us to interrogate who's doing that act of defining a concept. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I agree with you on that. I think you're <laughs> ducking the issue. It's very convenient, especially for a, a dead French philosopher to suggest that language is some sort of uh, something to be avoided. Uh, but that's another question, Natalie. Let's come mm -hmm. back to the United States. And um, we've talked mm -hmm. a lot about Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan and elsewhere. But you make this comparison between Arizona, which is a fairly conservative state, and Saudi Arabia. The book talks about one of the, the anecdotes in the book is a moment in May 1856 when some camels were brought over to Indianola, Texas, uh, as part of an experiment in, in military warfare. You suggest that the southeast of the United States is sort of somehow symbolically linked with the desert. Um, in an odd way, you're flattening geography. You're suggesting that the deserts of Southwest America, United States, and the deserts uh, of the Persian Gulf are quite similar. Talk to me a little bit about mm -hmm. what you mean by that and what has been happening in the Southwest of America, and particularly in Arizona after, uh, over the last 100 years, particularly in terms of the politics and economics of water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, a lot of questions all in one, but I think this this links well with this question of language, right? Because uh, one of the first things that I noticed in, in considering this project, uh, at first I sort of thought I would I would do a comparative study, so looking at parallels between different desert contexts, uh, but I quickly realized that there were actually direct connections between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula that I got interested in. So in the in the book and in my research, I'm always trying to follow those connections. Who is linking these places? One of the key ways that these actors from the 1800s to today are linking Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula is around the story of the desert. 
And to your questioning before, there's no essence to what the desert is. Uh, and I don't seek to, to define that. There's lots of different ways that we can imagine the desert as being, as having uh, a water scarcity and other sort of features of the physical geography. But what I saw in this project was actually that the actors themselves back to the point of tracing who's doing the defining. The actors themselves found the desert and this very nebulous fluid concept of the desert to be quite strategic. And so they would use that story of we are common because or we have much in common because we are desert people, because we have familiar experiences in the desert. And of course, as you say, the Arabian desert and the Sonoran desert and the desert southwest uh, of the United States are radically different deserts. Um, so, so many things are, are different about them. But for the actors who were seeking to build those bridges, they worked with exactly that confusion about it, but the concept it ser itself served as this kind of currency to, to help them build those connections. Um, so for the, for the camel experiment, I think this is a good uh, illustration of exactly how you had the early settlers of the US Southwest thinking, okay, we have this new world desert. How are we going to take military control of it? Um, and for many of those early settlers, they didn't have any direct experience with what a desert was. And so they started to uh, conjure a lot of different imaginations of deserts. And for most of them, their, their frame of reference was the Bible and biblical stories. Uh, some others had, some, one of the other major proponents of the Camel experiment had experience of uh, the Ottoman war and seeing camels being used in, uh, in the Middle East during, uh, during war there. But for the most part, it was a it was a kind of biblical imagination of okay, well they they use camels for lots of purposes, for transporting goods, etc., uh, and this was then a justification for bringing those camels and trying them out, transferring that idea of the old world desert and the speak explicitly in these terms in the archival documents, the old world desert to the new world desert. Um, so that's, that's the, the sort of first set of questions that, that you uh, pose. But as for the, the developments today, I think there's, there's many different directions that, that I could take that. So maybe well, I'll I know you, you talk about in your New York Times mm -hmm. piece, the mm -hmm. way in which uh, a Saudi agro giant Almarai is buying up Arizona buying up farmland, which is also incredibly surreal. Hmm. Yeah, so there's the, that. So there's several deals that they have within Arizona. I don't think that they have any new ones in the works, and I would be shocked if they if they tried to initiate that now because uh, they there has been a lot of pushback against uh, against these farmland acquisitions in Arizona in in like the last year approximately, and also following uh, the 2022 election in Arizona, there's a new Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, and a new attorney general, Chris Mays. And both of them have been on the record saying that they want to find some way to get uh, this farm deal with the Saudis revoked. Uh, so that there's 
a lot deeper history to that. But in short, uh, the, the, this Saudi dairy giant, Almarai, has a subsidiary that acquired this land. And they have been essentially just investing in these high-powered wells and using that those deep, deep wells to pump Arizona's aquifers to grow alfalfa. And that alfalfa is then getting shipped back to Saudi Arabia uh, as feed for the Saudi cows. Um, Again, there's many layers to this, but the short version is that in Saudi Arabia, effective 2018, uh, local farmers were not allowed to grow, uh, yeah, green forage, basically. So the feed that you need to give the cattle at these dairy farms, it could not be produced locally uh, because of a government ban on this. Uh, so they have instead looked internationally to acquire that feed and to do that in a in an efficient way. Yeah, and uh, actually what, what, it, what it suggests to me is lots of criticisms of our globalized world, but what you seem to be suggesting is that globalization is also incredibly surreal. It's just <laughs> odd. Um, in a way, it's, there's a science fictional quality to it. Uh, mm -hmm. I know you, you, you've also in your book think a little bit about Frank Herbert's book, June, that science fictional warning about um, a dystopian environmental future. There's something very mm -hmm. odd going on in the world here, what you, mm -hmm. in which you put your finger on in Arid Empire, and in uh, and in uh, and in your other work and in the New York Times piece, it, it's just strange, isn't it? It it absolutely is, and and maybe this is just a reflection of my own uh, personal interest in these curious kinds of connections. But it the the scientific fiction element of it is is maybe always present when you're thinking about desert environments in particular uh, just because they hold such an important place in this imagination um about extreme environments and the extreme difficulty of living and thriving in a world where resources are limited. Uh, so it, it is kind of this amplified image of, uh, of many of the conversations that we see today about the climate crisis, but also certainly way back in the 1960s and 70s when you had the sort of eco-catastrophism, uh, there were all sorts of variants of this, this apocalyptic story that we've seen that repeat themselves over and over again. Uh, so there is, is certainly that the, the Dune piece fits into that in sense of creating that, that I, sense of anxiety about living in a resource uh, scarce world where the deserts, they, they sort of serve as um, a metonym for that bigger, that, that bigger story about scarcity. And yeah, I would say the, the connections that we see linking Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula today are also quite odd. I mean, this past weekend I had to go to, uh, I was in Arizona and, and they were having the Saudi sponsored live golf tournament in Tucson in my hometowns. So I had to mm. go to that, right? To see on the one hand, this intense sense of anxiety within Arizona about Saudis coming to steal our water, but we're happy to host the Saudis in their golf tournament here, uh, that, that these contradictions are actually part of our system. And I think this comes back to my long interest in spectacle where the focus of, a, of an actor who wants to use spectacle efficiently and effectively is to focus on the positive things, 
the live golf tournament, for example, and downplay the negative things, uh, the, the idea of these grossly unsustainable water use practices uh, in Arizona. And I think that that sort of tension is, is always with us. And it's also a feature of, of many of these regimes that are authoritarian and get increasingly authoritarian is they get increasingly bizarre. Uh, witness North Korea or Turkmenistan or perhaps even Russia today. And what about technology here? I know you have an interest in the Biosphere 2 um, indoor world created in the University of Arizona. Are you optimistic that technology can help us here? Or is technology only deepening our crisis of authoritarianism and inequality and exploitation? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I have to admit that I'm very pessimistic on this account. Uh, so the idea of Biosphere 2 is that we need to be able to evolve off planet. Um, that was sort of the founding idea of it. And so if you build this Biosphere 2, it's supposed to be this laboratory for figuring out how we as humans can create a miniature Earth and prepare to evolve off planet. This is the words of John Allen and the others that were behind the Biosphere 2 project. You might just um, explain very briefly, uh, Natalie, yeah. because I'm not sure mm -hmm. all our viewers and listeners will be familiar with mm. what exactly Biosphere 2 is. Yeah, exactly. So so Biosphere 1 is is Earth, right? Uh, so Biosphere 2 is essentially just to create this miniature model of Earth by having all these different ecosystems in what what amounts to more or less a big greenhouse. Uh, so it's, it's, it's encased in glass and it was supposed to be a closed system. Yeah, and that's the sort of geodesic And this is at the University of uh, Arizona, right? Now, yes, yeah. When it was begun, it was attached to the University of Arizona. Columbia University held it for some years, and now it's back in the hands of the University of Arizona. You know, in an odd way, it seems not entirely different from the, the new Saudi city of Neom. Exactly, exactly. And the, the Neon has three different projects, but the one that most people are aware of by now is the line. And it's this, I don't know, many hundreds of kilometers long uh, city that's supposed to be encased in glass. And it, it is very much a similar set of, of images. And you sort of have within, again, it's, it's all renderings right now because it hasn't been built, but encased in this glass is these spaces of uh, bounty and lush vegetation and, and all sorts of these, these images of a kind of techno utopia just within the, the confines of that glass. Um, and and in, in this case, and, and act back to the idea of biosphere with a story that if we can create these, these models of living in uh, these contained spaces, that this can help prepare us to live off earth. And this continues to be a story within biosphere too, uh, largely targeting this idea of preparing to colonize Mars. Um, and that idea of evolve off Earth probably already rings some bells for people when you start to think about uh, the, the stories of uh, yeah, Elon Musk and others who would like to be able to settle, uh, settle Mars and prepare for that eventuality. And I think what's, what's so harmful in, from my perspective about a lot of these things is that 
they tend to take our attention away from solving the problems here and now. It's as if we can just abandon this earth and we don't need to worry about it because we're just preparing to to go live on Mars. Um, and, and this is to me really quite tragic that we need to be thinking about exactly how we invest in today and invest in real world solutions that are about here and not about Mars or uh, another distant galaxy. Ultimately, of course, Natalie, this mm. is all about the scarcity of water. Mm. Uh, this is not a new problem. Uh, the movie Chinatown, 1974, one of the great masterpieces of Hollywood, focuses on water and murder and criminality in Los Angeles in a world not entirely different from Arizona. Um, mm. The water crisis is deepening, isn't it? The scarcity of water is becoming perhaps amongst, certainly with global warming, amongst the most acute problems how do we solve it? How do we even, maybe not solve it, that's a rather silly question, but how do we even begin to address it? In the mm. context of your work on Saudi and Arizona, mm. uh, how would you begin to address it as a geographer? I think the what we see in the U.S. Southwest and also the source of the 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 problem in Saudi Arabia, the complete obliteration of their own groundwater reserves, is this unsustainable approach to commercial agriculture, uh, and that I would say is is the the, the low hanging fruit in dealing with these uh, th these water scarcity issues in the U.S. Southwest. If you look at the states that are Colorado River. Uh, basin states. The vast majority of the water that they're pulling out of the Colorado River goes towards agriculture. And it's this kind of investment of Southwest water reserves to go to, to producing um, salad for every day, all through the winter, this kind of agricultural system is really quite unsustainable in the United States too and much, many other yeah. places. Natalie, too much low hanging fruit, right? That's yeah. the problem. Exactly, exactly. And at, at all times of the year.